Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 19. Our scripture reading for this morning is Leviticus 19 and 20. Uh, As you uh, may know, we've been working through Leviticus week after week, um, and we've made it to Leviticus 19 and 20 this week. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there should be some Bibles out on the table just outside the door. Feel free to grab one of those uh, for our scripture reading. If you don't own a Bible, you should also feel free to keep that Bible. Write your name in the front, take it home with you, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Leviticus 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it, or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire." If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God." You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave assigned to another man and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall shall not be put to death because she was not free. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it must not be eaten. And in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. 
shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut him off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Molech. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. If a, man commits sexual, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father, or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and, and uncovers her nakedness, he has made naked her, naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people." You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. 
If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall die. They shall be childless. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood be upon them. I, I wrestle with holiness, and I, I mean the concept of holiness, not to mention the practice. I, I wrestle because in our culture, the word holiness is often associated with either just the obscure rules of the Old Testament that we don't understand, or it's associated with a list of rules about drinking and smoking and dancing and movies and associated with kind of a holier-than-thou attitude toward those around you. I wrestle also because when people talk about holiness, I often lose sight of grace. And so before we start talking about the, the laws of Leviticus 19 and 20, the call to be holy as God is holy, we've got to understand the priority of grace, which is why the first point on our outline is the source of holiness. Uh, you can see on the back of your bulletin, there's an outline there, and I have since switched two of the points, so let me alert you to that right now. Uh, the middle two points are, are reversed. So uh, we're going to talk about the source of holiness, then the pattern of holiness, which will be the bulk of what we talk about, and then the counterpoint of holiness and the goal of holiness, which will be much shorter, both of those two. So the source, the pattern, the counterpoint, and the goal. The, the, the source of all true holiness is God's acceptance of us in Christ. We, we must belong before we can become. Uh, belonging uh, is, of course, implied in the repeated phrase in these chapters, I am the Lord. First, uh, look at verse 2 of chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 2 says, if I can find it, uh, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And uh, you, you've probably heard that phrase before, be holy because God is holy, be holy because I am holy. It's repeated in Leviticus, it's repeated a number of times in the New Testament as well. And, uh, but you may have overlooked an important part or important, an important implication of this phrase. Uh, so in Leviticus 19.2 it says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And notice how God refers to himself, I, the Lord your God, I, I am your God. He's saying to his people, not somebody else's God. It's not, I will be your God if, but I am your God. I am your Father. You shall be holy because I am your God and I am holy. See, belonging, belonging 
comes before being holy. Acceptance comes before obedience. Again, our tendency is to turn this on its head, right? If I do or if I follow the right rules, if I can be holy somehow, then God will accept me and take me as his. But the truth is, as long as you are uncertain as to God's acceptance of you, then holiness, true holiness, actually remains somewhat out of reach. See, as long as holiness is a means to the end of gaining God's acceptance, if I see right behavior as a means to the end of gaining God's love, then holiness is really a way for me of manipulating God to like me. God, if I just do these things, if I follow these rules, then maybe you will love me. But manipulating God by moral behavior, of course, that's, that's not holiness, right? See, we must first grasp the acceptance of the Father before we can walk in holiness. Of course, I'm not saying that, uh, well, then don't bother trying to do the right thing until you fully and completely understand God's love because that's not going to happen in this life. But I am saying, right, that the number one priority in striving after holiness is striving to grasp the love of the Father. Notice some of these other I am the Lord statements in these two chapters. So chapter 19, verse 36 says, uh, midway through the verse, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. See, God does call us to a moral standard. The beginning of that verse, you shall have just balances, just weights, just ephah, and so on. We're going to talk about the moral standard in a minute. But the foundation of that moral standard is, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. See, the foundation of, of morality, it's, it's redemption. God does not go down into the mud pits of Egypt and say, be holy. And once you're holy, then I'll think about saving you. No, God loved his people. He redeemed his people. He freed his people from slavery. And then God says, now be holy as I am holy. Redemption, God's work, uh, God's saving, freeing work comes first. And then God comes and calls us to live differently. Or look at chapter 20, verse 26. 2026 says, you shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you shall be mine. God had separated Israel from among the nations, and now Israel was to separate themselves, that is, be holy, because God had separated them. Just as God separated the, the waters above from the waters below on the second day of creation, just as God separated the, the night from the day on the fourth day of creation, so God had done a new act of creation, so to speak, in separating Israel from the nation so that they would be his. He was constituting his people. See, to separate is to make holy. It's to set something apart. To be holy is to, to set aside or set apart. And when God says, I have separated you from the nations, he is saying that Israel had a holy status. They were his holy people. And God had done that. He had made them holy, given them that status. So Israel is God's people. He is their God. He had freed them from slavery in Egypt. He had separated them from the nations. They were his. They were holy. They had a holy status before God. And then look at chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. God says there, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now, both the word consecrate and the word sanctify have the same root as the word holy, right? So this verse could read, uh, though it would 
be a little repetitive. Make yourselves holy, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who makes you holy. Right? So, so con make yourself holy, be holy, because I'm the God who makes you holy. Okay, so, so uh, why are we to make ourselves holy? Why was Israel to make themselves holy? Because the Lord was their God, and he, the Lord, is the one who makes them holy. So th this is important, right? Because what this is saying is holiness, God is calling them to live it out, but holiness does not come from you. Right? Holiness comes from God. We, we strive after holiness, but only because the Lord is our God and he makes us holy can we move anywhere in that direction. See, Israel's holy status came from God. He set them apart. But if Israel was to live holy lives, that holy condition or that holy life, that must come from God as well. So here's the, the foundation of all holiness in Israel was the Lord was their God. He had freed them from slavery. He had given them a holy status and he would work in them a holy life. Becoming holy must flow from belonging to the Lord. Obedience flows from our acceptance, which is ultimately ours in Christ. Now, this presents a little bit of a problem as we're reading through Leviticus, uh, because uh, you, you may remember Leviticus 18, which we looked at a few weeks ago. We talked about the various laws about sexuality and worship. Leviticus 20, as we just read, it repeats many of those laws, doesn't it? Repeats many of those same things, but it's not a bare repetition in Leviticus 20. There's something different because now the corresponding punishment is given for breaking those laws. Right? So you have the laws in 19 and then you have the punishments in chapter 20. If someone sacrifices his children to Molech, the punishment is in verses 2 and 3. It says, uh, they shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Molech. So uh, throughout this chapter, and we see them both right here, there are two main punishments for these sins. There's the death penalty on the one hand. The, the person who sacrificed his child to Molech would be stoned with stones. There's the death penalty, but then there's also cutting the offender off from among his people. And uh, you, you gotta wonder, okay, what, what's the difference between the death penalty and being cut off from among your people? Well, cutting off could mean a, a few different things, but in light of verses two and three, it probably means something more than death, right? Something more than death. In verse two, the person who sacrifices his child is stoned to death. And then in verse three, God says, I myself, so the people stone him to death, I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people. God seems to be saying that there are two punishments. The people stone the offender and God himself cuts the offender off from his people. Okay, cut him off how? What does that mean? Well, in Israel, uh, there was this common phrase for dying. You see it in the book of Genesis again and again. It, Genesis says of Abraham and Isaac and, and, and later of Jacob as well, he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So, so death is seen as uh, joining your relatives in death. And so what God means when he says the people will stone this person, but I myself will cut him off from his people, is that there will be both a civil punishment for this crime and an eternal punishment. God is going to punish those who committed child sacrifice beyond the grave. They would be punished not just in this life, but also in the life to come. 
Now, now you may be putting together the problem that I mentioned just a moment ago, uh, because on the one hand, God says, you are my people. And on the other hand, God says, if you do some of these heinous sins, you're going to be put to death. And for some of you, I will even punish you after death by cutting you off from your people. So you belong to me, but if you are really bad, I'm going to cut you off from my people, which doesn't sound so secure. It seems to undercut everything we said about belonging being the foundation of being holy. And in, in one sense, it would if it were not for Jesus. And Jesus came into the world as the Holy One who always did what pleased the Father. He was a delight to his daddy. But the Father sent him to the cross, right? not for his own sins, because he had none, but he went to the cross on behalf of sinners. And Jesus was cut off. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was cut off from the Father's acceptance. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cries that out because, well, the Father had forsaken him. And he cries it out so that we would know he was forsaken. Why is that so important? Because it's only because Jesus was forsaken that I can be accepted. It's only because Jesus was cut off that I have no fear of being cut off. See, Jesus, the Holy One, died in the place of the unholy. He took our place, our punishment, our condemnation, so that by faith in Him, we might have His place, His reward, His justification. See, we can have a holy status, the holy status of Jesus, because He took our status of rebellion and died for that. We can belong because He was rejected. I, we can take that one step further, actually, because Jesus came to secure our acceptance with the Father. But why did Jesus come? Well, you know, John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. It's the Father's love for sinners that sent Jesus to secure for all time the Father's acceptance of sinners who trust in Jesus. See, if you look at the cross and believe that what Jesus did there, he did for you, you can know both that you have been accepted because of the work of Jesus and that the Father loved you before the world began. See, through the cross, you can know that God is your God, that you belong to him. And you belonged to him even before the world started because it was then that he planned out to send Jesus to bear your sin. Think about it. Is it hard for you to believe that the Father accepts you? You know, you sitting there uh, in your chair, you're, you're the only one who knows your particular sins. You're the only one who knows the way you have rebelled against God. Uh, you're the only one who knows your transgressions, your sinful thoughts, right, that you hide from everybody else. The sinful things that you'd like to do or wish you could do but don't do because it wouldn't be socially acceptable. Right? Only you know those things. Is it hard for you to believe that the Father would accept you, right, even you? Is it hard to believe that you could belong, right? That the Father would have a, uh, that you would have a place at the Father's table, as it were. If you trust in Christ, that place is yours. He was rejected that you might be accepted. Do you struggle in the Christian life then to, to be holy as God is holy? Well, if you if you struggle, your battle must start with the cross. Meditate on the cross, right? See the Father's love for sinners in action. Know that through the work of Christ, you have been accepted. And the more you grasp that, the more you grasp the fact that you belong, the easier walking in holiness will become. Being holy comes from belonging. See, that's the source of holiness, is our acceptance with the Father. 
Okay, but what does it look like? Right? What does holiness even mean? I mean, we've been talking about it now for I don't know how many minutes. What, what does it mean to be holy? Well, first, the pattern of holiness. And here again, we're switching these two points in the outline. That goes, by the way, for the children's pages as well. If you're following along, uh, the points are switched. The pattern of holiness. The first point to make here, again, is, is to go back to chapter 19, verse 2. 19, verse 2 says, You shall be holy... For I, the Lord your God, am holy. We are to be holy because God is holy, right? The pattern of holiness is our Father in heaven. Being holy means being like our Father. We belong to Him. We have been accepted into His family. We are now to take on the family resemblance. When you belong to the Father, when you, when you own Him as your God, and when He owns you as His child... God desires you to become like him. You may remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says we're to love our enemies. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Right? Jesus wants us to be like our daddy. Which begs the question again, what is our Father like? Well, first, that the pattern of holiness is seen in our Father's love. Seen in our Father's love. Leviticus 19 is actually famous for having the command... In verse 18, Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The rest of the chapter really expands on this central idea in one way or another. And it, 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 of course, shouldn't surprise us that central to our obligation to one another is the command to love, right? Because Jesus himself says that the law is summed up in the command to love God and love your neighbor. Well, Leviticus 19 actually got there first. Jesus wasn't making that up on the spot, right? He, was, he just knew his Bible well. He was quoting Leviticus 19. And then we have these laws in Leviticus 19 dealing with how to love in specific day-to-day -day circumstances. And what's beautiful about it is, is the fact that Leviticus doesn't leave the command to love as kind of this abstract, wishy-washy, lovey-dovey statement, right? Rather, it's actually very concrete, specific, and in that day, actionable. Right? There were things that people could do in order to love their neighbor as themselves. I, uh, I don't have time to go through every verse. You, you may be happy to know. I'm not going to go through every verse. But, but I do want to highlight some themes, right, in Leviticus 19. First, we are to love the, the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. This is really a major theme in these verses. You may have noticed it as we read. Uh, it, but it begins in verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8 say that when you offer a peace offering, you have to eat its meat within two days. Now, that's actually a lot of food because if you offer a cow as your peace offering, how in the world are you going to eat that in two days? A whole cow. I mean, let's say you're married and you have a couple kids. Okay, still, that's a lot of meat to eat in two days. And, of course, what in the world does this have to do with love? Well, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Chapter 16 actually tells us that when Israel brings a freewill offering, which is a kind of peace offering, they're not to come alone. When you bring your peace offering, you're supposed to come with the Levite and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow. See, the peace offering was not just about your personal relationship to Yahweh, right? You were to invite others, especially those most in need. You were to invite the stranger, invite the fatherless, invite the widow, so if you have food left over, that shows that you weren't caring for the poor. In fact, verses 9 to 10 then continue this 
line of thinking. Verses 9 and 10 say that Israel is not to harvest right up to the edge of their field. Uh, They're not to clean out their vineyard or strip their vineyard bare. And they're not to do that so that uh, the poor and the needy would have the opportunity to come and harvest some for themselves. Right? So, so you, you leave a little bit in your field around the edges. Anything you miss, you just leave it. You don't go back and get it. So that the poor and the needy and the vulnerable and the widow and the orphan, right? so that they can come and they can glean for themselves and have some food to provide for them. Now, uh, these laws in some ways don't quite stand, as they stand, they're not quite applicable today. If a farmer you know, didn't glean all the way to the edge of his field, there, there aren't many poor people who would walk there and glean it and get it. But the basic principle uh, is that these laws challenge us to think about how we as individuals can provide for the poor around us day by day out of the abundance that the Father has given us. That's the idea is that, okay, that the, the farmer was to leave some for the poor. Well, that, that's not quite the way it might work today, but what could it look like? Verse 14 goes on again about the the needy or the vulnerable. Verse 14 seems kind of obvious to us, I think. Um, You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Uh, But the point is actually not just don't harm handicapped people, right? I mean, that's the point on the surface, right? That's, That's part of it. But notice it doesn't say don't curse the blind or put a stumbling block before the deaf, Right? It says it the other way around. The, the verse is about being mean when you can get away with it. Because the deaf person can't hear you curse them. And the, 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 the blind person can't see you put the stumbling block there. Right? So, so the blind person and the deaf person can't, won't know if you're being mean to them. And think about it. Isn't it more tempting to talk bad about someone when they're not there or they can't hear? Or, or do we care more about having people think we love the vulnerable than actually loving the vulnerable? See, we can look good if we're cursing the deaf, because, or at least before them, because they don't know it. Verse 14 shows us that, that loving people involves real integrity, right? It's not just loving people when they might notice, but caring for them even with little chance of that being returned. Verse 33 and 34 also talk about love for the vulnerable. Verse 33 and 34 of chapter 19 talk about the the stranger or the sojourner. Well, the stranger and the sojourner was the the immigrant, the alien. These verses challenge us to love the immigrant as ourselves. In fact, it's, it's it's interesting to me, you know, the verse, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We've got that down. Well, verse, uh, is it 33 or 34? Verse 34 says, of the stranger, of the immigrant, you shall love the immigrant as yourself. Right? That's what it says. Um, Okay, how relevant is that today? What might it look like for us to love the the non-native, right? The non-American, the aliens and the strangers in our midst. To take these verses seriously, all of these verses about the poor and the needy and the vulnerable around us, we have to first see them, right? recognize that they are there, and then we have to think deeply about what will genuinely help. Right? What will genuinely help? We can't simply just lift the, the laws out of here again because, okay, if I have a vineyard and I don't pull all the fruit, that's not going to genuinely help the poor and the needy unless they know about it. And I provide them access to get there or something like that, right? I mean, there, there's, you need to think deeply. So we need to see 
those who are vulnerable and needy, and we need to think deeply about what will really help. Okay, so first, the first sort of aspect of love in this chapter is loving the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. The second is we need to love by seeking fairness and justice for all equally. Right, verses 15 and 16 call us to seek justice in court. And while our temptation may be to defer to the rich to gain their favor, or, or it may be to assume that the poor are always right and the rich are always the oppressor, right? two different temptations, these verses call us to neither be partial to the poor nor to the rich. So uh, verse 15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Anytime the courts favor one people group over another, whoever that is, rich or poor, black or white, male or female, right, it is an injustice and a lack of love. Before the civil law, all are equal. And so uh, you can, again, see the relevance of this in our day. If our law keepers show prejudice against one people group over another, that's an, an injustice, right? A lack of love. Third, we're to love others by seeking reconciliation when possible. Uh, this is the context of the command, actually, to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the context of that command in verses 17 and 18. Look at those verses, 17 and 18. The assumption behind these verses is that we have a reason to hate our brother, right? Starts out saying, you shall not hate your brother. So it's assuming that you might. So you must have some reason to hate your brother. So um, the, the assumption is you have been wronged. So think of someone right now, right? Think of someone in your life who has wronged you. Think of someone who has wronged you. You have somebody in mind. Now listen to verses 17 and 18 with this person in mind. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. See, if someone wrongs you, don't hate him, but talk to him. Reason frankly with your neighbor. Talk to him. Don't take vengeance, right? Don't give the person the silent treatment. Don't talk about them behind their back. Don't bear a grudge. But what? Love your neighbor as yourself. See, it, 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 it was striking to me. I don't know if it's striking to you, but it was striking to me that this verse, in its original context of, of, of loving your neighbor, was really about loving your enemy. Someone who has wronged you. Someone who you have a reason to hate. That's when God says, go love that person. You know, we know the parable, Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan uh, and in light of that parable, we tend to take the command to love your neighbor as, as pretty wide, expansive. We get it. Everybody is our neighbor. Okay, Jesus, we got it. But Jesus, Jesus also says to love your enemy, Matthew chapter 5. And we, when we hear that phrase, we only apply it to very specific circumstances. So we think love your neighbor, that's everybody. Love your enemy, that's a couple people. But the truth of the matter is, the closer to you someone is, the more likely they are to wrong you at some point in your life. And that's when real love is actually put to the test. You know, it's with your spouse or your child or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your roommate or your literal neighbor. Here's the test of love. When they wrong you, right? here's how you know whether you're loving your neighbor. When they wrong you, how do you respond? Do you respond in anger or hatred or vengeance? Or do you seek to work things out and decide not to bear a grudge?
Again, would, we would be blind if we didn't think about the application of this to our present circumstances, right? We're called to seek reconciliation, to make amends with our brother. What might that look like in our country today? How should this be worked out on a personal level or a local level or a national level, right? We can think of applications of this. So we're to love the poor and needy and vulnerable. We're to love by seeking fairness and justice for all uh, equally. We're to love others by seeking reconciliation when possible. And fourth, and this will be the last one I point out, though there are other verses here that we haven't covered, but fourth, we're to love others in the way we conduct business. It may seem like it doesn't fit, uh, but I point this out because often we think of love, again, only on the individual level, and we've already seen, of course, that it involves justice and the court system, but it also includes the way you conduct your business. Look at verses 9 and 10. They're about business practices that provide for the poor. It's really what it comes down to. A landowner farming his land, what does he do with that? Verse 13 is about treating your employee in a way that cares for their needs. Verses 35 to 36 are about business practices that are fair and just and honest to the consumer. Isn't it interesting? I think it's interesting that, that love, according to God, is shown through the way you conduct your daily business. And what this means is that business is, is not merely to seek my own advantage, right? And certainly not to the harm of other people. What you do at your work and how you do it matters to God. What you do at your work and how you do it is really a platform for loving your neighbor well. And so we're to love the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. We're to love by seeking fairness and justice for all. We're to love others by seeking reconciliation when possible. And we're to love others in the way we conduct our business, in our work, the way we go about our work. The question is, why, why are we to love this way? Well, this is the heart of our Father. I mean, think about it. First, all men stand before the Lord alike. We're all condemned in Adam. Uh, Paul says, even the Jew is no better off in Romans 3, but all alike, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Our Heavenly Father judges impartially according to each one's deeds, according to 1 Peter 1. More than that, he loved us, the Bible tells us, when we were poor and needy. Look at verse 34 of chapter 19. He says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God says to Israel, you were strangers in the land of Egypt. They were more than strangers there. They were slaves in the land of Egypt. They were oppressed in the land of Egypt. And they should remember that oppression and not oppress the people around them in the same way. Well, we were poor and needy and vulnerable and oppressed and enslaved, not in Egypt, but to sin. But the Lord loved us. And if we remember that oppression, that slavery that we were once in and that God brought us out of, that should cause us to treat others differently. God loved us by seeking reconciliation, right? Through the blood of Christ. Paul says, God through Christ reconciled, him to, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul says to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Right? So why should we seek to reconcile our, uh, uh, be reconciled with those around us? Well, because God has reconciled himself with us and we are to imitate our father. God didn't love us by seeking his own advantage to our hurt, but by seeking our advantage to his own hurt. 
He gave up his only son to bear sin on the cross. Jesus gave up his life for us, suffered for us in our place, and we are now to do the same in life, to seek the advantage of others, even when it's to our own harm. What all this means is that everything we do now is shaped by God's justice and love and reconciling mercy in the cross. Holiness is living in imitation of our Father, who is holy. The pattern of holiness is seen in our Father's love. The pattern of holiness is also seen in our Father's order. Now, we tend to think of love and structure as opposites. Uh, We we tend to, to think of order and structure and boundaries as hindering love and not enabling it. Uh, But in Scripture, love and order actually go together. Uh, Holiness involves recognizing the order of creation and then living in that order. Recognizing that order, of course, involves recognizing boundaries and distinctions and, and what things are set apart, what things are off limits, what things deserve honor. Recognizing the God given order of things. And so we have verse 18, Leviticus 19 18, which we love, pun intended. And then we have verse 19 which is nonsensical to us. Verse 19 says, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Who cares? I mean, who cares whether we breed different kinds of cattle or sow different kinds of seed or wear a garment of two kinds of material? What difference does it make? Well, on the one hand, I think what's going on in Israel is this was symbolic of a way, a symbolic way of recognizing the orderliness of creation, recognizing the boundaries that God had put into the world. So God made the animals distinct, right, each according to their kind, and he calls us to recognize that, keeping separate what God had made separate. Uh, But this is actually even more, makes even more sense for Israel, whom God had separated from among the nations, right? We see that at the end of chapter 20, God had separated them from among the nations. And so part of recognizing the order of creation, part of recognizing the distinctions in redemption is keeping categories clear. That's what God's calling Israel to do. So we have this whole list of laws involving boundaries or things that had been set apart, which follow verse 19. So uh, you have the the boundary of a a woman who was set apart for another man or the fruit of a tree that was set apart to the Lord. Uh, You have the the, the distinction or the boundary between Israel's worship and the worship of the nations in verses 26 to 31. And of course, you have chapters 18 and 20 where you have whole lists of sexual boundaries, boundaries which were not meant to be crossed by God's people. So you have these these interpersonal, ceremonial, liturgical, moral boundaries that God is laying out for his people. He's telling them his God-given order to life. And the question for us is not, you know, are our clothes, you know, 50% cotton and 50% polyester or something like that, right? But the question for us is, are we willing to live within the God-given order of things? Are we willing to recognize the limits to our sovereignty, the limits to our will, God-given distinctions within the created world. You know, if we start tearing down those boundaries within the created world, we inevitably lose the boundary between the created world and the creator himself. We start tearing down the boundary between the common and the holy, the secular and the sacred. 
Holiness requires love and order, distinctions. These things go together. Really, uh, selfless love requires distinction, doesn't it? It actually does. You, you, You can't have selfless love apart from distinction because selfless love requires the recognition that you are not me. But I will love you as myself anyway. I must recognize my neighbor as neighbor before I can love him as myself. And I must recognize God as God, the Holy One, not a creature, but the Creator, before I can properly love him as God. So love requires discernment and definition and distinction. Love and order go together, and they're at the heart of holiness. So we've seen the source of holiness. It's our acceptance with the Father. We must belong in order to become. We've seen the pattern of holiness, the Father himself, in his love and order. The next two points will be much shorter. First, the counterpoint of holiness. We talked about this when we discussed Leviticus chapter 18. I'm just going to sort of touch on it briefly. Um, Back in Leviticus 18 and at the beginning of, uh, well, in midway through chapter 20, again, God commands Israel not to be like the Egyptians or the Canaanites. Don't be like your neighbors around you. And uh, we heard echoes of that few weeks ago in Romans chapter 12, which says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And in 1 Peter 1.14, which says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. When we get to chapter 19, though, it tells us to be holy as God is holy. And the implication is that God, too, is not like the world. Scripture tells us this, right? It says, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But think about the specific things we've been talking about, love and order, or or the God-given order, the boundaries in life. Is our world characterized by an abundance of love? Does our culture seek out and submit to the deep structures of creation? No. Our culture, and every culture, tends toward violence and chaos, hatred and disorder, condescension and unbounded desire. See, if we're going to be people who, who genuinely love and are willing to live in the, the God-given order, only when we do that will we truly be countercultural. Right? A city set on a hill, salt and light in the world, because we love the way God loves, because we, we live in the order that God has created. See, the source of holiness is our acceptance with the Father. The pattern is the Father's love and order. The, the counterpoint is this fallen world. We are called to be a counterculture of love and order. Finally, the goal of holiness. Holiness, of course, is not the goal in and of itself. Uh, We said that a few weeks ago as well. Uh, We've been in Leviticus for a few months, and the goal of Leviticus is teaching God's people how to draw near, how to draw near to God. In the Old Testament, that happened through the sacrificial system and, as we see here, through personal holiness. Only if Israel uh, lived a holy life could they remain in the land. Otherwise, the land would vomit them out, Leviticus says. So, through the sacrificial system, they drew near, and through personal holiness. So, Israel could dwell in the presence of God in the promised land forever. When the New Testament, drawing near to our Father, happens, not through the sacrificial system, but through Christ. And, in a sense, through personal holiness, as we are conformed to Christ's image, that we might dwell with him in the new creation. Uh, You may remember last time we saw that without holiness, no one will see God, Hebrews tells us. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. 
So what is God doing? What's his plan then for the lives of believers? Well, we read in 1 Thessalonians earlier, God's will for your life is your sanctification. He's making you holy. That's what God is doing in your life. He's making you beautiful as he is beautiful. He's making you glorious as he is glorious. He's making you holy as he is holy. That's what God is doing. It's his work that he will complete. This is what God says in Leviticus 20, 26, right? He says, God, he wants us as his own. He took us that we would be his as a lover wants his beloved. See, the goal of holiness ultimately is intimacy with our Father. The Lord who saves and the Lord who sanctifies is preparing us for the consummation. He's preparing us for communion with himself in the new creation. He's getting us ready for that day. And with that hope in mind, we prepare ourselves as a bride getting ready for her wedding. Strive after holiness. Because without holiness, we're told, no one will see the Lord. But of course, he who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that ultimately uh, you are the one who makes us holy as you are holy. You are the one who conforms us to the image of your Son. Help us to, to trust in that, to rest in that, and because of that, to strive after holiness. Not, not with anxiety, not, not with worry, not with fear that we might not live up, but knowing that we've already been accepted so that we are free to strive to serve you, simply to please you because you're our Father and we love you. Work that love into us more and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.